This is Guns and Butter. And uh, Iceland, essentially, the government of England is saying, hey, you're, you're private kleptocrats, you're thieves, you're criminals, have money to our bankers. Our bankers have made your criminals huge amounts of loans. The government has to tax the people to pay this money that the criminals have, have uh, taken. Now, th- this, this is neoliberalism writ large, and it's uh, an abhorrent uh, theory an abhorrent uh, principle, an illegal principle, and Iceland has been the first country to reject it and say we are not going to go into poverty so that our kleptocrats can pay your thieves. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, Iceland Recovering from Neoliberal Disaster. Michael Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of The Myth of Aid, and Global Fracture, the New International Economic Order. Dr. Hudson has written many articles on the current global financial crisis. Today we discuss his most recent article, Recovering from Neoliberal Disaster, Why Iceland and Latvia Won't and Can't Pay the EU for the Kleptocrats' Ripoffs. The Financial Times published a column by Dr. Hudson in its August 16th issue on Iceland's financial crisis and its pushback against the IMF and World Bank entitled, Iceland's Debt Repayment Limits Will Spread. Michael Hudson, welcome. Thank you. You have recently returned from a trip to Iceland and have an article running in today's Financial Times entitled, Iceland and Latvia Can't Pay so they won't. The Icelandic parliament, the Althing, met this weekend, and you have said that the changes this weekend were epic-making and have changed the whole global financial system. What happened in the Icelandic parliament? For the first time since the 1920s, a debtor country has insisted that the debt be written down to reflect the actual ability to pay. Uh, Iceland said that if it agreed to Britain's illegal demands uh, for reimbursement for uh, Prime Minister Gordon Brown's uh, mistakes and uh, bungling of the ICE-SAVE affair, that uh, one-third of the Icelandic population would have to emigrate, the country would have to sell off all of its uh, property, probably to England, and the country would be reduced to uh, neo-feudalism. And they said, this is absolutely ridiculous. No democracy is going to go along with this. Uh, We insist that uh, the debts reflect the Icelandic uh, economy's ability to pay, as we've been insisting for the last year. Britain has said, if you don't pay, we're going to strong-arm the IMF. Uh, We're going to strong-arm the World Bank not to lend you any money. We're going to bankrupt you, and we're not going to let you in Europe unless you pay for Gordon Brown's mistakes. 
and Europe has said, we don't care about Iceland, we don't care about new members, we're letting all of our financial policy being run by neoliberals in England. Uh, Europe is basically a financial entity, not a social entity, not a social democracy. There is no room for democracy in uh, finance. Uh, You must make the central bank independent. We don't care what the parliament says. We are going to do what is good for England. And that is the European uh, overall uh, position. I I expect that uh, Britain and uh, Holland will reject the conditions that Iceland has uh, said, and uh, this will create a crisis within the common market, within Europe. Well, let's back up and take a look at this. Now, what exactly is iSave, and what was the scam there? Uh, a little after 2000, uh, neoliberals from the World Bank and the Washington Consensus uh, went to Iceland and said, we can make you a more efficient economy. We want you to give all the property to the richest people in Iceland. Just give away the banks. You don't need a government bank. to Give it away to the private uh, people, to the rich political insiders. So they created three banks, uh, the Landsbank and the uh, Glitner Bank and uh, the uh, Cope thing. Bank. And each of these were controlled by local uh, oligarchs in Iceland who uh, derived most of their power from the uh, neo-estates set up way long ago in feudalism, except for Kaupthing that uh, went in business with a group of uh, Russian offshore criminals and uh, operated as sort of an extension of the Russian uh, mafia. So the banks are privatized. Uh, Cope thing, uh, way overpaid to buy a British bank and uh, purchased it. Uh, Glitner uh, had some offices abroad, but uh, the real problem is Landsbank. And that set up uh, not a foreign affiliate in Britain, but branches, and they were called ISAVE. Essentially, uh, the people who ran the bank found, look, we can go and we can get deposits, and we can raise uh, 2.6 billion euros. That's about $4 billion they raised with deposits. They then took the deposits and they paid them to themselves. And in conjunction with uh, some British uh, kleptocrats that were connected to uh, Culp thing, they used the deposits to make loans to the big uh, shareholders of the banks to buy shares in the banks to bid them up in a kind of Ponzi scheme. They thought if we take the deposits uh, from bankers, from uh, just charities and people in London who want high interest rates, and we use these deposits to lend to ourselves to buy the bank stock, we'll be rich in no time because then we can sell the bank stock that we have at a a profit. So this basically was a scam. Well, finally, uh, the Landsbank tried to convert the branch into a affiliate, which would be overseen by the uh, Bank of England and the bank regulatory authorities in England. Uh, England dragged its feet until finally it said, wait a minute, we think uh, that there are crooks running the bank. Uh, we're shocked to find out gambling is going on here, and uh, decided to close it down. So the uh, Icelandic insiders immediately sold their shares in the bank and uh, emptied out the bank deposits to lend to themselves, and so Britain then closed down ISAVE, and uh, instead of following uh, European law, uh, they decided to bail out the depositors. Well, what happened in early October was uh, 
the Icelandic banks, being neoliberal, uh, uh, didn't have a government deposit insurance system. They had a private uh, bank deposit insurance system that was about as uh, adequately funded as AIG uh, insurance was over here in the United States. Way underfunded, but the uh, Icelandic authorities wrote to uh, Britain and said, well, the government is going to stand behind uh, what we owe the depositors. That is about 20,000 euros uh, per deposit. Uh, Alistair Darling went uh, to a public interview and said Iceland is refusing to pay, and Gordon Brown closed down ISAVE. And when you close down a foreign branch, uh, the deposit insurance agency that's involved, in this case uh, Iceland's, has three months to pay off depositors. And under special circumstances, such as uh, an economy-wide breakdown, it can ask for two more three-month uh, periods of delay. So uh, the depositors really shouldn't have been repaid for at least nine months. This would have given the Icelandic banks a chance to go after the criminals who had looted them, uh, many including the British criminals who looted them, and uh, uh, could have recovered some of the money. Uh, Gordon Brown did not permit them to recover the money from uh, his own uh, criminals. He uh, immediately turned around and by the end of October, using his own funds, and the same happened in the Netherlands, they paid the depositors out of British funds. Well, you can understand why, because at this time, uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland had gone under after Northern Rock also had gone under, and uh, the British bank management was so hopelessly incompetent that Gordon Brown didn't want yet another incompetent uh, bank failure on his order. But then he said, I've uh, broken the law. I have illegally paid all the depositors to make myself look good. Now, you Icelanders, uh, will you go into 200 years of peonage, uh, sell off your country, and just emigrate and leave the island to be sold so that I can look good. Uh, needless to say, the Icelandic parliament said, are you crazy? Uh, we are going to make an agreement to pay, subject to, uh, in court, they have to say that it's our obligation to pay, not your obligation. Secondly, we're insisting that uh, this is a sovereign debt. You're asking Iceland's government to pay for the debts run up by the kleptocrats, by the crooks who Gordon Brown is protecting. You want us to pay for the private crooks that you neoliberals came and you said, turn over your economy to the crooks. Crooks are more efficient than our government. Uh, crooks make the economy run. You're making us pay for this junk economic theory. And uh, England is saying, yes, that's what we want. And if you don't want it, we're going to uh, essentially isolate you and treat you like Cuba was treated for many years or North Korea. Uh, we're going to make you the new North Korea of the North Atlantic. Uh, I think this is crazy of Europe to do because uh, <laughs> Europe needs uh, – uh, Iceland has a critical geopolitical position in the world, and uh, Europe doesn't care. Gordon Brown says, I don't care if you go to Russia. I don't care if you go to China. I don't care if you go to North Korea. Uh, you pay us or we're going to hurt you. That's the British position, and that's what neoliberal economics comes down to. Their idea of equilibrium is do what we want or we'll kill you. Essentially, it's your money or your life. That's uh, equilibrium neoliberal style. Now, there were more than simply Icelandic crooks involved in this iSafe scam. There were Russians and Britons as well, right? Yes. Uh, 
the details have all been spelled out in the Icelandic press. They hired Ava Jolie, a French uh, jurist, to uh, head the prosecution. Uh, only uh, in the last few weeks, almost a year after the fact, have uh, British uh, serious fraud uh, department uh, begun to help Iceland track them down. Uh, apparently, the role of the British uh, serious fraud agency is to protect serious frauds against governments trying to recover the money that fraudsters have stolen. Uh, just like in America, if you know from the movies, uh, what does the mafia do? It wants to have one of its own guys in the police department, preferably uh, in the prosecutor's office to protect them. Essentially, that's uh, what Britain's position is. We're not going to help you recover the money. Uh, we're just going to make you pay our crooks. Who financed the property bubble in Iceland? Essentially, the banks and the pension funds uh, financed it. They thought that uh, Iceland was borrowing money basically from Japan uh, in what was called the carry trade. Japan's bubble broke in 1990, and uh, the banks uh, essentially were pushed into negative equity when their property bubble collapsed. Land prices went down in Japan every single year for uh, about uh, 17 years, every quarter. So uh, the government said, how are we going to let the banks earn their way out of debt? Well, we're going to just let the banks create unlimited amounts of money uh, to lend abroad. So Japan banks would uh, create credit in yen at about uh, a quarter of a percent or half a percent and lend it out, and people would borrow at a very low percentage. Uh, speculators and arbitragers would borrow yen at, say, uh, at 1%. They'd convert them into euros or dollars or sterling, and they'd lend to Iceland at 16%, so that by uh, 2007, Iceland was paying 16% for uh, foreign uh, loans. And somehow the bankers thought that with the economy paying 16%, it could still make a profit uh, buying a property as long as property prices went up by more than 16% a year. And uh, by 2006, Iceland on paper had the highest standard of living in the world. In other words, if you uh, looked at its exchange rate, and it looked like the money that uh, Icelanders were supposed to be getting as their currency rose, it seemed as if they were all rich. But what they really were doing was uh, debt pyramiding. They were uh, running into debt to bid up property prices, and they thought, gee, our property is going up in price. Uh, all we have to do is borrow yet more and buy yet more property, and as long as property prices go up uh, at a faster annual rate than the interest rate we have to pay, we'll be rich in no time. Well, what happened after ISAVE happened? Uh, Gordon Brown wanted to grab all the Icelandic money last October that he could, so he uh, used the anti-terrorist law. He said that Iceland, a country without an army, uh, was essentially a terrorist uh, using the legislation passed right after 9-11 in 2001. So uh, branding Iceland as a terrorist, he grabbed uh, all the Icelandic money that he could in Iceland to essentially uh, use for himself to uh, pay out uh, depositors. Uh, all of a sudden, this caused the Icelandic currency to collapse by 18%. The mortgages that the Iceland home buyers and speculators had taken out were all in foreign currency. So the Icelandic currency that they were paid in, that they got their income in, and that they... Uh, got their rents in, were all paid in Icelandic krona, but the money they owed was in British sterling or euros that had gone up 18%. So all of a sudden, uh, Icelandic property was pushed uh, across the board into negative equity. And unemployment is, has spread. Uh, you can look at Iceland as a dress rehearsal for what would happen in the United States 
if uh, the neoliberals and the creditor interests and uh, Mr. Obama's planners uh, get their way. Iceland became a creditor's paradise. Uh, the loans, uh, not only did mortgagees have to pay the interest rate of about 5.5%, but uh, they had to pay an extra premium for the decline in the price of the currency. So they had to pay an extra up to 18% penalty over and above the 5%. So uh, the Icelandic homeowners and personal debtors were paying the highest interest rates of any developed country in the world, and they were going bankrupt. Uh, emigration has already begun. Foreclosures have begun. I spoke to people there who uh, were telling me about losing their homes, and uh, other people have said, well, we haven't lost our home yet because uh, we had savings that we accumulated and we're running down our savings just so we don't get evicted. But uh, obviously, this is a situation that can't go on, and uh, you can imagine how upset uh, uh, the Icelanders were when uh, England said, uh, pay us or we won't let you join Europe. Uh, they've done polls now, and whereas uh, most Icelanders had uh, had good thoughts about joining Europe uh, as recently as last uh, April when there were elections, now only about a third of Icelanders uh, want to join Europe, and the proportion is falling very quickly. Now that it's clear that Europe isn't uh, really the social democracy they uh, had wanted, but a neoliberal country run by, uh, by British creditors. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, Iceland Recovering from Neoliberal Disaster. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You say that no matter how much a government may tax its economy, there is a problem turning the money into foreign currency. Is that what you were referring to when you said that, uh, when you talked about the uh, Icelandic currency inflating? Uh, Basically, yes. It's a very difficult concept for most people to grasp. Uh, The position by the International Monetary Fund and international creditors uh, and England and Holland today and the IMF was to go to the Icelandic government and say, you really have to pay England. They're friends of ours. Uh, The government has to pay, and how can the government pay? By taxing its citizens. Well, the Icelandic uh, parliament said, wait a minute, we can tax our citizens in the currency they're paid in, which is krona our domestic currency, but how on earth are we going to pay uh, debts that you denominate in euros and sterling, uh, the f- almost 4 billion euros that we owe? Uh, if, we, if we take these domestic krona that we tax and we throw them on the foreign exchange market, that's going to flood the market with krona, and the uh, foreign exchange is going to go down. So the more we tax, uh, the less foreign currency we have because we have a foreign exchange collapse. Now, the only way, ultimately, that any economy can pay off its foreign debts is to export something to earn the foreign exchange to pay them. But uh, Iceland only has one export that it earns foreign exchange from, and that's the codfish. It does have aluminum, which is made out of electricity, that it provides, but it's uh, made such bad contracts with uh, Alcan and other aluminum companies that the aluminum companies have made huge loans to themselves charge off all of the profits they make as if they were interest payments, claim that interest is tax deductible, so nobody can figure out what Iceland gets uh, in exchange for its aluminum exports, if anything at all. The contracts are all secret. 
Part of neoliberalism is to have all contracts secret uh, so that you can bribe people. The essence of neoliberalism is bribery of government officials and uh, bribery of private officials off the balance sheet. So you make a contract that uh, is a disaster for the company, a disaster for the bank, a disaster for the country, uh, and you pay the person who signs this contract in some offshore banking center uh, a special bribe. And uh, then you go to the country and you say, a contract is a contract. We have to have the sanctity of markets. The sanctity of markets under these conditions means uh, bribery by whomever, by the uh, uh, World Bank, by the British authorities, by multinational firms that are cheating companies. So really, when you scratch the surface of neoliberal economic philosophy, Chicago School market equilibrium theory, what it comes down to is lawlessness and bribery and, uh, and force. And that's what uh, is being used for Iceland. So Iceland can say, wait a minute, four billion pounds or euros of uh, money, how many codfish are going to have to uh, pay that, especially because the codfish owners of the licenses for the cod catch in the North Atlantic have uh, tried to make money by borrowing in euros against uh, their licenses, and now they all have to pay foreign currency debt too. So Iceland doesn't have any means at all of earning foreign exchange except by selling off uh, assets uh, there may still be in the public domain or by its population moving to America or Europe and sending uh, remittances home to their families who remain. Well, that's right. I was about to ask you how a country earns foreign exchange, and I guess it's mainly by increasing exports or selling off assets. That's right, or borrowing, borrowing the money. And uh, Iceland, essentially, the government of England is saying, hey, you're, you're private kleptocrats, you're thieves, you're criminals, have money to our bankers. Our bankers have made your criminals huge amounts of loans. The government has to tax the people to pay this money that the criminals have, have uh, taken. Now, th- this, this is neoliberalism writ large, and it's uh, an abhorrent uh, theory an abhorrent uh, principle, an illegal principle, and Iceland has been the first country to reject it and say we are not going to go into poverty so that our kleptocrats can pay your thieves. Okay, well, getting back to the position now that the Icelandic government has taken over the weekend, how is the all-thing Iceland's parliament changing the rules of the financial system? They uh, said, uh, we're quite happy in negotiating an agreement to settle the ISAVE accounts, but uh, we're going to insist that it be done under European law, the law that we signed. Well, this infuriates England. England says, what do you mean law? Uh, there's no room in neoliberal economics for law. Law is government interference. Uh, forget the law. And Iceland says, no, we want the law. First of all, do we owe you any money for what uh, Mr. Brown has paid his own depositors? Uh, do we owe you money when the British have protected its own thieves from the bank and the money is long gone? Secondly, Iceland said, as a sovereign country, we can't pay you debts larger than our ability to earn the foreign currency to pay. If you want us to pay a foreign currency debt, you have to tell us how are we supposed to earn the foreign currency to pay. Britain and Holland, in effect, have said, we're not going to tell you. We don't care how you pay. Uh, And Iceland says that's not an answer. Uh, If you want to get paid, you have to tell us how, and if we can't pay, we can't pay and no money will be owed. 
That's the principle that the Parliament has uh, drawn up. Well, now, is it Britain and the Netherlands that are mainly owed this debt? Yes. They, they let these branches in, and in true neoliberal fashion in England, England did not do any oversight at all officially to the banking authorities. It's hard to believe that it's MI6 and it's a serious fraud uh, department and its intelligence didn't know about the corruption going on. It didn't care, because it was its corruption. What is the capacity to pay principle, and is it being made the explicit legal basis for international debt service? The capacity to pay is, uh, it was introduced essentially by uh, John Maynard Keynes in the 1920s with regard to German reparations. The Versailles Treaty had uh, levied reparations on Germany uh, far beyond Germany's ability to pay. So the result was uh, much as had happened in Iceland, hyperinflation. Germany just printed the domestic marks, threw them on the market to raise the dollars to pay uh, England that then turned around and used these dollars to pay for the inter-ally arms debts uh, for the uh, arms that it had used to fight World War I before America joined the war. So Germany had no way of paying the reparations. And finally, uh, the only way that it was able to pay was to borrow for its cities and its states, would borrow money in New York, they'd borrow the dollars, the cities and states would turn the dollars over to the Reichsbank, uh, the central bank, for domestic currency. The Reichsbank would use the dollars to pay reparations to England, and England would use the dollars to send back uh, to the United States for inter-allied debts. Uh, and Keynes said, uh, this, this cannot go on, because all you're going to be doing is replacing the German reparations debt with the uh, uh, debts of cities, municipalities, and any companies uh, that can borrow. And uh, he designed basically the capacity to pay is here's how you calculate exports, not only uh, the physical volume of exports, but if Germany exports more uh, accordions or whatever, then the world price of accordions is going to go down. So there's a limit to how much Germany can earn to repay. Now, I wrote a uh, textbook that I used uh, since 19... uh, 69 in my international trade and financial theory course at the New School, and now at uh, the University of uh, Missouri in Kansas City, uh, I wrote a book summarizing all of this theory in trade, development, and foreign debt, and I will be reprinting this uh, in a print-on-demand uh, through Amazon uh, that should be available in about three weeks. So if you're interested in the theory, the book goes into uh, the long theory, but essentially Keynes developed it, and uh, as the world economy broke down in uh, 1929, the Bank for International Settlements was set up in 1931 in Basel, Switzerland, largely to uh, coordinate the payment of uh, German reparations. And it found, sure enough, that when you looked at Germany's capacity to export and capacity to pay, the reparations debt had to be scaled down. So in 1931, uh, a moratorium was declared, both on German reparations debts and on Europe's World War I debts to the United States for the arms, and uh, the debts essentially were written off. That's what's going to happen with a lot of foreign debt today. The Icelandic debt will be written off. The post-Soviet states' debt will be written off. Third world debt will be written off. And when did you say Germany's debt was written off? In 1931. Uh, That was when there was a moratorium, uh, the Hoover Moratorium, on uh, reparations and inter-allied debts. I've written about that in my book, Super Imperialism, which traces the history of intergovernmental debt. 
Are there similarities here between Germany after World War I and Iceland and other post-Soviet economies today? You've talked a bit about uh, the capacity to pay, etc. How similar are these situations? They're similar in a, in a number of ways. Uh, the debts they owe far exceed their ability to uh, run a trade surplus to generate the foreign exchange to pay off these debts. These debts are in foreign currency. Uh, the United States owes its debts in dollars. So we can just simply print more dollars here and pay them. We don't have to worry about the exchange rate. Uh, but if you're Iceland or a post-Soviet economy, uh, you have your own local currency that you make your income in, or if you're a real estate owner, you get rent in. But uh, people won't lend in your local currency. They lend in a hard currency, euros or sterling, or Swiss francs. And so uh, these countries all owe a foreign currency debt. And when you owe a foreign currency debt, you have to be able to obtain the foreign currency by exporting something. Well, uh, since the post-Soviet economies got independent from Russia in 1991, uh, the neoliberals came in and said, uh, turn over all of your uh, public property to the insiders so they can sell out to us at a... uh, at a profit to themselves. We want to buy all of your property on the cheap. That's neoliberalism giving away the public domain. Uh, neoliberalism essentially makes its uh, money by cannibalizing the uh, public domain and selling it off and financializing it. So the uh, post-Soviet economies, uh, like Iceland, turned over their public domain and their banks to private uh, owners, and the private owners turned around and sold them to Western buyers, often borrowing money from the West uh, to buy yet more property. And so the debts uh, that are owed by the post-Soviet economies, as in Iceland, mainly are owed by the very rich, by the political insiders, by the old Communist Party officials. Uh, Neoliberalism supported the old Communist bureaucracy. Uh, It said, we want you to leave the Communist bureaucracy in power, and whoever is head of an agency, if someone's head of, say, the gas gas prom or the gas uh, agency, give him personally and give the managers all of the stock in the gas company, and then let the gas company uh, issue shares and uh, sell them in New York, and uh, we New Yorkers and Brits and other international investors will buy up the uh, uh, Russian gas rights. So uh, the neoliberals used the old communist apparatchiks as vehicles to financialize and to gain control of the uh, natural resources of Russia and uh, the real estate of uh, Russia and the post-Soviet economies. Uh, Until about a few years ago, only about 15% of Latvians, for instance, had mortgages. Other people owned their uh, apartments free and clear because the banks really would only lend to the insiders and to the crooks. Uh, It's very hard to lend to somebody who isn't a crook because you don't know how strong they are. And you know if someone's really plugged into the criminal class that uh, they can depend on their friends to bail them out and make sure that they uh, pay current on the debt. So the global financial sector of uh, British banks, Swedish banks, and uh, other banks uh, work hand-in-hand basically with the criminalized classes that took over the assets of the post-Soviet economies, the Baltics, Central Europe, just as they did uh, in Iceland. And uh, somehow this hasn't got into the economic textbooks, that neoliberalism is uh, a partnership in financial crime, basically. And the world is now seeing all of the the unstated assumptions that are not written into the textbooks that uh, economic students are indoctrinated with. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, 
Iceland Recovering from Neoliberal Disaster. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And I guess, as you have mentioned, the United States uh, is the one country in the world that is in a completely different position regarding having to pay off foreign debt. Yes, our foreign debt is in our own currency. Uh, and if the dollar goes down, uh, other currencies uh, will have less of their own money that they can get for these dollars, uh, but the American debt won't go up if the American uh, currency goes down. We'll still owe dollars. The dollars just will be worth less and less and less. So America can inflate its way out of debt. Other countries can't. Is Iceland willing to impose the kind of austerity programs that devastated third world countries from the 1970s to the 1990s? No democracy is able to do that. You need a dictatorship or an oligarchy to do that. And that's, the, that's why financial institutions don't like democracy. That's why they insist that central banks have to be independent from the political process, meaning that uh, voters won't have any voice over the policy. But Iceland is a uh, European-type social democracy. And, of course, uh, no social democracy is going to vote for feudalism. Uh, It turns out that when neoliberals talk about uh, the post-industrial society, they don't really mean going forward at all. They mean lapsing back into feudalism. And uh, uh, Iceland said, look, uh, we spent centuries trying to uh, advance from feudalism. At least we had a uh, self-sustaining economy through the 1980s. It wasn't a very rich economy, but at least uh, everybody was independent and self-sufficient. And now you want us all to go back to dependency on a group of financial lords, except in this case, instead of landlords, they're going to be uh, financial creditor institutions, and uh, these institutions will largely be foreigners. Uh, We got our independence from Denmark during World War II uh, because we thought at that time Denmark had been conquered by the Nazis, and we wanted to protect our democracy from a parent country that was losing the war. Uh, We're not going to now give up what we won in World War II just uh, so that we can pay the foreign creditors. If the price of paying England is to give up democracy and become a feudal oligarchy, uh, we're not going to vote for that. How is Iceland then proposing to repay its debt? It's proposing to ask Europe, how on earth are you going to let us uh, pay our debts? If you'll uh, buy our cod at, say, $1,000 uh, a pound, uh, no problem. Buy our cod for $1,000 a pound. Then we can pay off the debts. But if you're going to uh, buy our cod at a very low rate, and uh, if you're going to say if Iceland joins Europe, you have to let the British uh, fishermen and the Dutch fishermen and Norwegian fishermen into our fishing grounds, so we can't even control our own national uh, water rights, then we are only going to pay you what we're able to pay that's limited to uh, 3% of the growth. Uh, actually, it's altogether England and Holland. 6% of the growth in gross domestic product as of 2008 will be allocated to uh, pay the ice save depositors. So to the extent that our gross domestic product can grow over what it was in the last healthy year of growth we had, 2008, uh, we'll be willing to pay you. But if uh, 
you, England and uh, Holland, take punitive action against us, if you try to isolate us, if you treat us like you treat Cuba and North Korea, and you make us shrink, then there won't be any growth out of which to pay you, and we won't owe you anything. Exactly, because then if the IMF and the World Bank imposed austerity on them, they would have no growth in GDP, and therefore they wouldn't pay anything. That's the point, and that's why they're taking 2008 as the base year, not 2009 when the GDP's fallen by probably 18% as it has in the Baltics. Uh, The Icelanders joke that they're the most post-Soviet economy in the West uh, because they are almost the twin of the Baltic states. Now, how is it that Iceland is the first economy to push back against the EU and the IMF debt repayment plans? They were driven to the wall and had no alternative. The alternative to pushing back was to lapse back into feudalism, and you're not going to have any uh, democracy voluntarily give up its economic freedom and go into uh, centuries of debt peonage. Uh, Third world countries were able to because the United States had backed uh, creditor oligarchies there uh, with force of arms, as it did in Chile. But unless England can put the equivalent of a General Pinochet in control of uh, Iceland and say, uh, this dictator is for free markets, uh, Chicago style, and if you don't like what we're doing, we're going to kill you. Uh, We're going to close every university in the country, economics department. We're going to shoot all the labor leaders. If uh, England is not willing to do that and have a domestic Pinochet, then it's going to have to abide by the democratic decisions of Iceland. Now, this democratic decision of Iceland with regard to its debt repayment is a real game-changer for the global financial economy, isn't it? Yes, and here's the problem for England and Holland. For the last 400 years, England and Holland have represented uh, the basic creditor interests. Uh, When England was a debtor country, it uh, created monopolies, uh, the South Sea Company, the Bank of England itself, most of all the uh, East Indies Company, and its large uh, privatized monopolies were bought by the Dutch. Uh, And the Dutch were the bankers at that point. So uh, first the Dutch in the 17th century, and then England in the 19th century uh, have become the main creditor interests. If they accept the principle that the Icelandic democracy is putting forth, then it'll be open for the Baltics to say, wait a minute, we want a capacity to pay principle too. Uh, We're just like Iceland. You neoliberals have uh, stolen our property by telling us to give it to the kleptocrats so you won't uh, lend money. EU has given money just for us to repay the foreign bankers. We escaped uh, communism to have industrial capitalism, social democracy style that Western Europe had. We didn't give up communism to revert back to feudalism. Communism was our alternative to feudalism. We want to become uh, industrial capitalists just like you. We want to be democracies, and now you're telling us that we have to do what Iceland has turned down? We're as strong as Iceland. And they're going to say exactly the same thing. So the game is over for the neo-feudalist creditor class in the world. Now, do you think that Iceland's going to be able to stick to its guns on this matter? Absolutely. It doesn't have a choice. Its freedom is at stake. Its independence is at stake. To give in to England is to go into a century of debt peonage. 
And uh, that has become more and more clear. The Icelanders, first of all, got furious uh, last October when Gordon Brown classified them as a terrorist country. A terrorist country means we can't pay. England and uh, Gordon Brown have said a country that can't pay its debts is, by definition, a terrorist country. Uh, and so what England did was then impose financial terrorism on Iceland, uh, freezing its foreign exchange in London, which was basically the banking center of uh, Europe and the North Atlantic, and uh, essentially uh, making it impossible for Icelanders, even normal Icelanders, uh, to use the banking system to pay their debts. Uh, so this bankrupted uh, overnight a lot of uh, Icelandic firms and Icelandic individuals lost their savings as a result of uh, foreclosures. So Iceland already began to get angry. It voted out uh, the neoliberal government, which was very largely the independence party, which obviously should have been called the dependency party. But uh, if you're neoliberals, uh, you use Orwellian doublethink and you call yourself the independence party. They voted it out of power, and a coalition was voted in this April. The coalition was led by the Social Democrats and by the Green Party. The Social Democrats essentially wanted to uh, join Europe on almost any terms. Uh, the Greens didn't want to join Europe. They were more independently minded. But they had appointed as a foreign minister a former communist labor organizer who really wasn't very at home in international finance. And uh, when the uh, finance minister went to England, uh, he probably did his best to defend Icelandic interests. But England and Holland said, this is take it or leave it, pay or else. And uh, here's the agreement we're uh, giving you. Take it back to the all thing, the parliament, and have it ratified. So the finance minister dutifully brought back the agreement, and it was just totally dictated by uh, the British financial authorities and was terrible. And so now the Icelanders are so angry that the coalition government had even uh, sent a finance minister that didn't just walk out of the meetings and say, look, this is nonsense. I'm not going to accept this agreement and bring it to Parliament, that uh, there's probably going to be a new uh, political turmoil in, in Iceland. As soon as the problem came up with ISAVE, uh, the government called a quick election before the Icelanders were going to have a chance to actually sit down and discuss it. So I went to Iceland just before the April election. I met with uh, former prime ministers, with the neoliberal prime minister Odson, with other former prime ministers. I met with political leaders. They all said uh, the same thing. We're not going to pay the debts that are run up by our kleptocrats. But the issue is so politically explosive that it's hard to fight the election over. So nobody in the April election was really talking about the foreign debt issue at all. Now they're all talking about it. And there's been very heavy coverage. I was on uh, the government TV show. I've been on this morning already with the uh, government uh, radio and TV uh, being interviewed. The article in the Financial Times has already been translated into Icelandic and has got big coverage, as did Ava Jolie's article earlier this month. So this is now uh, what the Icelanders are talking about more than anything else, especially uh, because on July 31st, WikiLeaks, from the Wiki Encyclopedia, uh, leaked the uh, the Kaupthing Bank's secret report of last uh, October, showing that just before the, uh, uh, it may have been late September, October, showing that most of the loans of the Kaupthing Bank uh, had been made to its own shareholders without security, 
to buy their own stock, and that these included uh, wealthy British shareholders. And uh, it's these loans to your own shareholders, banks aren't supposed to do that. Banks are supposed to do a business by taking money from depositors and lending it out to third parties. You're not supposed to take depositors' money and lend it to yourself. You're not supposed to take depositors' money and lend it without having any security. So when you lend it to yourself without any security, that's doubly bad. And when you take depositors' money, lend it to yourself, and use your money to buy bank shares uh, to push them up in value, that's what's called a Ponzi scheme. I guess now it's called a Madoff scheme. But all of that is thoroughly improper. And even though uh, Kopfing Bank, uh, like Landsbank, had been nationalized after the crisis, the Kopfing Bank sued the Icelandic National Broadcasting System to prevent publication of this uh, Kopfing bank report that had been leaked. Well, the effect was like banning a book in Boston. Every publisher dreams on having a book banned in Boston because once a book is banned, everybody wants to read it. And as soon as uh, the government banned the Kopfing report from being discussed on national television, uh, Icelanders by the droves went on to uh, Wikipedia and WikiLeaks in order to find out all of the details. So finally, on August 4th, the uh, ban was lifted, and uh, strangely enough, the ban had only been applying to Icelandic national television, not to any other sources. So everybody was easily able to get the Kaupthing report, both from the internet and soon in uh, Icelandic, that had been banned and read it even before the ban was listed. And they realized uh, not only uh, how their own wealthy political insiders had abused the uh, bank processes in good neoliberal fashion by being uh, crooks, basically, but that these crooks had been working hand-in-hand with foreigners and with uh, Russian businessmen in underhanded ways that the government was not revealing. Well, uh, this is why they had hired Ava Jolie earlier this year to try to uh, uh, act as prosecutor and to get to the bottom of things. So Iceland is now saying, look, if you guys in England want to get paid for the ice save deposits. We want your serious fraud investigators in England to find out what the banks did with these deposits. We want you to help us uh, trace them down and recover the money. We'll be glad to pay the depositors out of the money that you help us recover. Well, so far, England has not helped them recover a penny, as far as I know. And uh, this obviously gets the Icelanders angry also. They say, wait a minute, you want to get paid and you're not even helping us trace down our crooks and what they've done in your own country? Uh, This is what it's come to. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, Iceland Recovering from Neoliberal Disaster. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, Dr. Hudson, according to you and according to Ava Jolie, if Iceland were to submit to austerity measures, only its natural resources and strategic position will be left. And then what would Russia's reaction be? Uh, well, that was she, it was she who brought up the question of saying, here Russia is going to find Iceland rich for the picking. Right after uh, the ice saves crisis last year, Russia offered a $5 billion loan to Iceland to help it get out. 
Well, it then Mr. Odson, the neoliberal, said he then uh, expressed interest, and Russia pulled the offer off the table. But obviously, there was a discussion in Russia and saying, wait a minute, here's our chance to break up NATO. Uh, if Europe says uh, we don't want Iceland as part of Europe unless it pays the uh, British kleptocrats and the Labour Party under Gordon Brown, uh, well, why don't you join uh, a reconstituted Comic-Con? Why don't you join the Shanghai Cooperation Organization? So uh, you can be sure that Russia, BRIC, the uh, Brazil, uh, Russia, India, and China alliance, uh, they're going to say, uh, you don't have to be part of uh, the uh, NATO trading bloc. You can join the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Uh, we need codfish. Uh, the Japanese have done really bad overfishing in uh, uh, Asia and uh, the Japanese Sea. The fish catch is going down because of the uh, anti-environmental practices of Japan. They're treating essentially the whole fish stock like they've been treating the whales. Kill everything you can and make as much money as possible, and then there won't be any more, but we'll be dead, so we don't care. So uh, Asia has always had a very fish-based diet. Russia can say, wait a minute, Iceland, this is very interesting. Uh, NATO base was closed down uh, last year when Mr. Odson left the government. And Mr. Odson told me that George Bush said, don't worry, uh, we're going to leave the NATO base in Reykjavik open as long as you're prime minister uh, or in the government because, you know, you've been a good friend of the United States. And Iceland has. But after the neoliberal party was out, America really had no reason to keep the air base in Iceland anymore now that we have jets which refuel in the air. And so the Reykjavik NATO base has been turned into part of the commercial airport system. Well, Russia can say, well, we'd like a base there. And by the way, there's also a fight over the Arctic mineral rights. Uh, we'd like your uh, sea rights. You don't have the financing to defend these rights or to exploit them, but why don't you uh, come and join uh, the Russian group? All of a sudden, you're having the post-Soviet economies develop what uh, nobody ever expected, a kind of nostalgia for the old Stalinist era. Uh, bureaucratic as it was under Brezhnev and Kosygin, they're saying, wait a minute, uh, it was awful, but at least we were self-sufficient. We had uh, security of property. We had security of our apartments. Uh, the nation owned its own uh, infrastructure. And now uh, everything's being uh, stripped away. Is, is neoliberalism really the way we want to go? Well, in uh, Latvia, for instance, the largest political party and the party that now dominates Riga, the capital, uh, had begun as the Russian-speaking party, and now the Latvians have all, not all, but a, a large amount are joining the party as an alternative uh, to the neoliberalism pushed by uh, the local parties uh, that basically had uh, their economic programs handed to them from American economists and George Washington University and uh, other neoliberals. So now the whole post-Soviet bloc is saying, wait a minute, do we really want to join Western Europe on terms that just end up stripping us to pay the European banks, or do we want to uh, do what Iceland's doing? So you're having, uh, right now, uh, the press isn't covering it, but the geopolitical shift is occurring because of the international debt issue, and that's what nobody's picked up on. But you can be sure they're talking about it uh, in uh, Washington and in the political centers. Well, yes. Is Iceland giving up on joining the European Union? Well, uh, nothing's going to be decided until they get the response. They've made a very fair offer to Europe. If Europe uh, treats them unfairly 
and says, uh, you're going to join us, but you're going to have to go back to feudalism and live like you lived in the 15th century. Uh, they're not going to choose to go and live under 15th century feudalism. They're going to say, well, thanks, but no thanks. You know, we want to be democracies, but uh, I don't think uh, what you're offering us is not uh, the uh, European-type social democracy that we imagined. What you're offering us is debt peonage to the British financial interests, and uh, uh, that's not uh, the same thing as European social democracy. So then, does this development in Iceland uh, foretell the breaking up of the European Union? It could, if Europe lets England and Holland financial interests uh, act as Mr. Brown has said he's going to act, act as debt collectors and bludgeon Iceland into either having financial debt peonage or uh, membership in Europe, then uh, this is going to break up Europe. And it'll be broken up by England's and uh, Dutch intransigence, not by communism, not by the post-Soviet economies, not by Iceland. Only Europe can break itself up. Now, initially, it's going to be Iceland and the post-Soviet Eastern European countries that are going to break away, assuming this does, in fact, happen. Do you see anything happening to the rest of the European Union, saying Britain and the continent? Uh, A lot of people are looking at the strains that are developing now. In many ways, uh, Europe today is not what uh, was the case in the European common market in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, The common market had uh, seven countries. Uh, Germany and France were the key, along with Italy and the Benelux countries. Uh, The common market really was a unit. Uh, In opposition to the common market and its common agricultural policy, to the EFTA had the seven. So you had the the six common market countries, and you had the seven EFTA countries, and Europe joined with Scandinavia. And once England went into the common market, it has acted as a wrecker to try to turn the common market away from the ideals that originally were created by socialists and internationalists after World War II into a kind of financial nationalism on the part of England and uh, the Scandinavian countries. And uh, what you may have is Europe going back to the original post-Sputnik development after 1957 of uh, the common market, continental Europe, acting independently of uh, the periphery, England and Scandinavia. And at that point, uh, they make make a much better deal with the uh, post-Soviet economies, uh, because the problem with the post-Soviet economies really is Anglo-American uh, neoliberalism, uh, that France and Germany have not really played a role in this. Uh, Europe doesn't really have a stake in the game that uh, Gordon Brown is playing, and it may uh, decide that it prefers to operate on a continental basis and just leave England to uh, be towed by a tugboat off the coast of Rhode Island, where it probably belongs uh, politically, uh, rather than being part of Europe. So you're saying that it's mainly Great Britain that has caused a lot of this financial problem. Yes. Now, with regard to the post-Soviet economies in Eastern Europe, uh, when they broke away from the Soviet Union, I believe you've pointed out in some of your writings that they owned everything outright, and now they're completely in debt. 
That's right. Uh, communist parties had a government bureaucracy, uh, but what they didn't have was a financial bureaucracy. And it turns out that uh, they were all against government planning, uh, because the government planning by the Soviets, <laughs> we all know the inefficiencies uh, that that had. But it turns out that what these countries now have is still centralized planning, but it's central planning by the international bankers by the Americans, by the English, by uh, cosmopolitan uh, bankers, and their own kleptocrats, who were the same people who had power during the communist era. They wanted to get rid of the communist planners. And now they still have the communist planners, but they're all uh, neoliberal bankers. Uh, and the, the planning is simply for themselves, and essentially they've turned the public uh, infrastructure, the roads, uh, the gas companies, and the real estate into toll booths to extract rent from the population. So the post-communist countries have gotten rid of the Stalinist bureaucracy, only to have a financial bureaucracy that's even more oppressive. Well, Michael Hudson, with regard to Iceland and Eastern Europe and uh, the EU in general, is there anything else you'd like to add? Just uh, read the international press. Uh, you're not going to have much in the American press on it. I haven't seen a word in the American press. It's amazing that here you have such a major geopolitical rift that there's not a word of it in the United States. And that's what happens when you let neoliberals control the press and control the universities. In order for neoliberal economics to work, you have to have totalitarian control of the press and the universities. You have to have complete censorship so that uh, people do not know there's any alternative to the junk economics that you're peddling. And uh, the neoliberals have uh, blocked any discussion of this anywhere in the American press. That's their idea of free markets. In order to have free markets, you have to have a intellectual police state in academia and the media. And uh, that's sort of also not in the neoliberal textbook. Uh, free markets mean intellectual dictatorship, and that's what we have here. So uh, read the international press. And uh, this is what is being discussed all over the rest of the world outside of the United States and England. Well, Michael Hudson, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bonnie. Something happening here. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. I've been speaking with Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show has been Iceland Recovering from Neoliberal Disaster. Michael Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst, and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of The Myth of Aid and Global Fracture, The New International Economic Order. Dr. Hudson authored a textbook used since 1969 in his International Trade and Financial Theory course at the New School and now at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, entitled Trade, Development, and Foreign Debt, which will be available on print-on-demand through Amazon. An earlier version was published by Pluto Press in 1992, but this is an expanded version of his lectures in the history of economic thought. Dr. Hudson has been a consultant to foreign governments, including Canada, Mexico, Russia, and now Latvia. Visit his website at www.michael-hudson.com. That's Michael, 
hudson.com. His articles are also regularly carried at globalresearch.ca and counterpunch.org. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Our website, gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction.